Welcome back to the Big Amateurism Monologues. My name is Richard Ford, and I'm your host. Just a quick reminder that all of my podcast materials can be found at my podcast website, and that is bigamateurism.com. And then I also have some material in a blog that I've been writing in for over two and a half years now. And the name of the blog is cagerredux.com. That's C-A-G-E-R-R-E-D-U-X.com. All right, so today we're going to begin our journey through the perfect storm from the beginning of 2019 and really look event by event and uh, major theme by major theme. The ways that this perfect storm has been defined and how it has played out and how we got from there to here. And it's a really interesting journey and so much has happened. And some of it really was not the way I thought it would play out. I framed this podcast around this notion that we're in the midst of this transformative era that could rival that period of 1945 to 1956 and then the Board of Regents era. And I think that's turned out to be true, but I really thought this was going to go in a way that was going to be more NCAA Power 5 friendly. So there have been some curveballs here, but they've been welcome curveballs for the most part. It's so important to understand coming into the next phase because we're not done yet. We're not done by a long shot. And as I said in my last episode, beyond what's happening with conference realignment, and that's going to be very, very important. But regardless of what that looks like, the power actors, and I'm including the NCAA there, and they're not out of the game yet, and then the Power Five, and then all the media interests, and all of the moving parts in the business of big-time college sports, want to be able to operate in the college sports marketplace free from any external regulatory interference and free from any threat of liability. So as we head into this next phase, I'm going to be looking very carefully at how realignment plays out from an antitrust standpoint, because whatever new entity exists on the backside of this is going to have to deal with some antitrust issues. And that folds into this campaign that the NCAA and Power Five have been on since the beginning of 2019 to uh, be free from antitrust liability. And they tried to get that uh, in the Austin case, and then they tried to get it in the Senate. And they lost in the Austin case. But as I said uh, before, and this is so important to remember, that element of their quest for the Iron Throne is still alive because they can always get congressional antitrust immunity. And then the other two components of their grand plan to sit above the law in the sports marketplace is to nullify all these state laws that interfere in any way with their business model and then to get a declaration from Congress that will prevent athletes from unionizing. So you have those three pillars that are still in effect. And what's going to happen in Congress here in the next couple of months is really going to decide what that actually looks like. And six months ago, I believe that the momentum on those crucial elements of the quest for the Iron Throne of college sports regulation were cutting in favor of the NCAA and Power Five. And that landscape's changed dramatically now, but it's not over yet. And I I just think it would be a mistake to underestimate 
the historical power of the NCAA and Power Five, and the NCAA in particular, and the extent to which these fundamental principles of amateurism and the collegiate model and the student-athlete and no pay-for-play and all that stuff is deeply baked into the psyche of the decision-makers. And the decision-makers here aren't 30-year-old consumers. They're 50, 60, 70-year-old, predominantly white male decision-makers sitting in Congress. And it's a completely different audience. And I said back when I was first talking about this campaign in the Senate that there's a reason that the NCAA and the Power Five started in the Senate. And that's because when you look at the demographic of the Senate, it looks a lot like the perfect profile of the decision maker that the NCAA wants. It's uh, old, white, male, and conservative with a lowercase c. And that's true whether you, you call yourself a Democrat or a Republican. So this is a forum where we simply can't assume that the events that have happened in the last couple months, particularly what's happened since the Austin decision, are going to change the minds of these people. And one of the things that I want to emphasize walking us through the perfect storm is the way that the NCAA and Power Five have subtly but importantly changed their tactics and and strategies to get the things that they want from the Senate. And a perfect example of that is the evolution of the proposed legislation that has come from Republican senators carrying the NCAA's water. And this goes back really to Marco Rubio's initial bill in June of 2020. And I said in a prior episode that I wasn't going to focus that much on Rubio's bill. But after going back and reading through these bills again, I actually think the Rubio bill is really important because it was the first salvo. And I think you got some insight into how the NCAA was initially thinking about what they wanted from the Senate. And it was a very poorly disguised bill. And they came in and basically this bill was going to ask for these three major protections and immunities. An audacious power grab, unprecedented in college sports history. I would say in American sports history in terms of federal uh, regulation and federal law. But Rubio's bill was only, I think, four pages long. (laughs) And more than half of that were the preemption provision, the antitrust provision, and the athletes can't be employees provision. It was just basically walking in and saying, we're just going to give the NCAA the iron throne of college sports regulation. And oh yeah, there's this little nil thing, but they don't have to worry about that until after we give them these protections and immunities. And when we look at that bill, I'm going to go through each of these bills in detail. You really see that was the starting point for the NCAA. And it makes a mockery of their claims to want to provide legitimate name, image, and likeness compensation benefits to these athletes. And we'll talk about that in just a second when, when we talk about how this this whole name, image, and likeness issue was initially framed. But you go from Rubio's bill, then you go to this stealth NCAA proposal that came into the Senate before, I believe it was the July 22nd, 2020 hearings in judiciary. It was off the books. They were talking about it at the hearing, but it wasn't a matter of public record. I tried to get it from my senator and I was told no. I called the ACC. They said no. These provisions were out there, but the decision makers on the Power Five and NCAA side didn't want people to see them. 
And I think it was Sports Illustrated got a copy of a couple of pages, and then I did a post on it. And I'm going to talk about that, too. And it was much like the Rubio bill. It was just very open in its audacity, and it didn't really try to disguise the, the real purpose here. And that was just to get these Iron Throne things, get in, get out, and then not worry about having to deal with antitrust suits or state laws. But then we transition into the Wicker Bill in December, and a lot's changed since because then you had the November elections and the Democrats lost control of the White House. That was uh, crucial. You had the Georgia special elections on the horizon. And then uh, Wicker's bill is much more cleverly disguised, and it makes it appear as if there are some legitimate substantive name, image, and likeness benefits. But when you pick it apart, it is as audacious and as illusory on the nil benefit side as the Rubio proposal and the NCAA proposal. And then we have this Moran proposal in February of 2021 after the flip in the Senate, after the White House changes parties. And that bill is even more disguised than for the first time in any bill that comes out of the NCAA Power Five Republican side it speaks in terms of some benefits that are not related to name, image, and likeness. So there's some, on their face, some medical benefits and some education benefits and some transfer rules benefits and all that. And I'm going to break that down too, because those were all an illusion. They were camouflage. But in all those bills, ultimately, the NCAA gets what it wants. It gets antitrust immunity, absolute antitrust immunity. It gets absolute preemption, and it gets a declaration under federal law that athletes can't be employees. But it's really interesting to look at how the those bills changed over that, what would that be, an eight-month period that reflected the changing circumstances in that eight-month period. So when we go back and we, we start at the very beginning of 2019, it's important to understand the NCAA's state of mind. And right now in July of 2021, we've had all these things happen in the last month that really changes the dynamic. But we're going to have to go back and put ourselves into the mindset that existed and the circumstances that existed in 2019. And the NCAA and Power Five were operating from a position of strength. And even though the NCAA was feeling some pressure to do something on name, image, and likeness, a lot of that pressure as the um, NCAA characterized it was really not that potent. And the NCAA grossly misrepresented the nature of the name, image, and likeness threat. So when we go back and we're looking through this perfect storm, there, there are really th three things that are in play here. One is the federal litigation. So the Austin case is so important. And the NCAA viewed that at the beginning of this perfect storm in 2019 as a way to get the antitrust immunity issue to the United States Supreme Court. And they lied about that through the entire litigation. And it really wasn't until the Supreme Court's opinion that you could say that they were lying when they said they weren't asking for antitrust immunity, because that opinion explicitly analyzed the case in terms of the NCAA's request for antitrust immunity. And they said, no, you can't have it. But that was their motive all along. And then you have the campaign in the Senate and Really, the, the trail that we follow 
to analyze that is in two components. One is these bills that were introduced in the Senate and then the hearings that were conducted. So you had these four hearings in 2020 that were ostensibly related to name image likeness compensation, but were really built around giving the NCAA and the Power Five these uh, three federal protections and immunities. That was the purpose of those hearings. And it was very well disguised by the third component that we're going to need to look at, and that is the public relations component. So the NCAA, while they're operating in federal courts to get this antitrust immunity, and then they're operating in the Senate to get uh, all three of these protections, including antitrust immunity. They are also launching this aggressive public relations campaign to lead the public to believe that they are serious about offering name, image, and likeness rules changes. And that began with the formation of the working group. And that was a, an NCAA working group. There were 19 members that were comprised of NCAA insiders and Power Five insiders. So you had conference commissioners. Bob Bowlesby was on that committee. And we'll talk about that when we look at the work product of the uh, working group. And you had Gene Smith, who was a well-respected athletics director from Ohio State. And he's in headfirst with the NCAA campaign. He testified in O'Bannon. I think he may have testified in Austin too, but the NCAA put him out front and center and he's a very appealing front man. He's African-American. He was NCAA all the way. He was NCAA human talking points memo and they got a lot of mileage out of Smith. And then you had Val Ackerman, who uh, is the commissioner of the Big East and she's a, a heavy hitter in college sports. And then you had uh, a coterie of college presidents and athletics administrators. And then you had, I think, three token student athletes, one from each division. But this was an NCAA inside job. They weren't going outside the family to get uh, input from people who may have viewpoints that were inconsistent in any way with the NCAA's fundamental principles. And from the very beginning, this uh, working group was announced on May 14th of 2019, was speaking out of both sides of its mouth. It was saying, yeah, we want to explore name, image, and likeness compensation, but it has to be done within the guardrails of amateurism and the student athlete and the collegiate model and all that stuff. So you had from the very beginning this irreconcilable tension that made the provision of any meaningful name, image, and likeness benefits almost impossible. But this was an important component of the quest for the Iron Throne in this perfect storm period because the NCAA had to provide some cover, some justification for going to Congress and asking for these extraordinary federal protections and immunities. You simply can't just walk in to the United States Senate and say, oh, we're a private nonprofit association and we make a bunch of money and we probably are operating outside the context of nonprofit <laughs> rules, but we want some protections here because there's so many people making a lot of money that we need to protect our business interests. So we want to make sure we can't be sued. We want to make sure that states can't regulate to change our business behavior. And we don't want the people whose labor we're exploiting to come in and claim that they're actually employees. <laughs> you can't just walk in and ask for those three things. 
there has to be some context. And this name, image, and likeness issue, which was never the threat that the NCAA portrayed it to be, particularly with the passage of the California law, which was really the fulcrum in this whole name, image, and likeness transition for the NCAA. But the California law was a marginal threat, and it was a remote threat because when it was passed in 2019, it wasn't going to go into effect for four years. And yeah, we'll talk about that in in a little more detail here. But the broader point is that you have to have some way to get these issues in front of the United States Congress with a straight face. And name, image, and likeness was the perfect vehicle for that. It was the perfect Trojan horse to roll into the United States Senate, and then you unleash the army that is basically making the case that there won't be any name, image, and likeness benefits unless the NCAA is in control of offering them. And the only way the NCAA is going to do that is after they receive federal protections and immunities that would allow them to do to do nothing on nil or any other athlete-friendly voluntary rules making. So in looking at the perfect storm, you have those three parts that play off against each other. And I've written a lot about this in my blog. And so as I talk through it and then publish the episode, I'm going to link to these blog posts so that you can go back and look at them. And one of the differences between the way I talk about this stuff in the podcast versus how I write about it in the blog is that I can't get to the level of detail and I can't provide the visuals. I include pictures of documents and important language and the full text of certain communications that you can do in writing that's a little bit harder to do in the podcast format. So I want to give you the the resources there so you can see it in a different way. And as this Austin suit played out and then the nil debate began, it became clear to me what the NCAA was doing. And I really started paying attention to how these three components, the Austin suit, the campaign in the Senate, and then the public relations campaign were playing off against each other. And it was a full-time job just keeping up with these three components. And on the litigation side, it really required digging deep into the bowels of that case and going in and, and looking at the every important document and reading the trial transcripts and really parsing the oral argument in the Ninth Circuit. But this was a very sophisticated, multi-pronged campaign. And what, what's important about it is the fundamental tension between what the NCAA was doing from a public relations standpoint and then what it was telling federal courts in the United States Senate. And a good example of that is the way that the NCAA characterized this voluntary name, image, and likeness campaign to federal courts and then how the NCAA characterized that very same campaign in uh, its public communications, its public work product, and in the media. And they are irreconcilable while the NCAA is issuing press releases and leading the public to believe that the NCAA Board of Governors had actually committed to name, image, and likeness rules changes and that those rules changes had already occurred. The media covered them as as if they had already occurred. At the very same time, the NCAA's lawyers in the Austin case were flatly denying that they had done anything on the voluntary rules-making front. 
that any changes in NCAA rules that would permit name, image, and likeness compensation were purely speculative. And it was mere conjecture and that nothing had changed. And the reason that's important is that the NCAA has refused to acknowledge that this entire name, image, and likeness campaign at the voluntary rules-making change level was a ruse from the very start. But what's happened actually proves my theory because to this day, the NCAA hasn't changed a single word of a single rule and I don't believe they ever intended to do so. So when we look at some of these statements and the timing of the statements in these three crucial forums, the form of public relations and the work product put out by the working group, and then the, what they said and wrote to federal courts in the Austin case, and then the content of these bills that were NCAA-friendly bills that came from Republican senators in 2020, you really begin to see just how dishonest this whole campaign was. And it's really shocking that the NCAA and Power Five came so close to pulling it off. And, And while they may be done in federal courts because of the Austin decision, they're not done in Congress. And they're not done in the arena of public opinion and persuasion. That is happening in real time right now. I've talked about uh, some of that in just in in the last few episodes. But as I am analyzing the events of the perfect storm beginning in in, uh, 2019, the important data points along the way are going to be comprised of uh, three primary sources. One is going to be at the public relations campaign at the NCAA voluntary rules making level. I'm going to rely on the work product of this working group that had three significant pieces of work product, in my view. The first was the initial release that they put out when the working group was formed, and that was in May of 2019. And then they issued an interim report, as I mentioned, in October of 2019, and then this final report in April of 2020. And in that final report, you really get some insight into how the NCAA and the working group were thinking about name, image, and likeness from the very beginning. And it's really a good roadmap for some of the gaps in the tape. (laughs) And when you go back and you look at that final report and how they characterized the initial thinking of the working group, you begin to see that it wasn't all that it was portrayed. And in a part of the final report, which is a fairly long document, let me see, I think this is 31 pages. So it is a substantive document, and it's the final word on the work of the committee. But that uh, final report characterizes the threshold question that the working group had to resolve as whether the association should maintain its opposition to the proposed state and federal legislation or whether it should work to develop a process whereby a student athlete could be compensated for the use of his or her nil in a fashion that would be consistent with the NCAA's core values, mission, and principles. And then they go on to talk a little bit more specifically about the considerations and that fundamental threshold question. But the question was whether they should engage in voluntary name, image, and likeness rules making, not how. And that is so important. 
But that's just a little sentence that gets buried. And the media coverage has this entire perfect storm over the last two years has been so bad and so NCAA friendly. And they were just printing whatever press release the NCAA put in front of them. And the NCAA had their way with the media. So when we go back and we look at how the NCAA came into 2019, you begin to see that this question of weather was really a question of how they were going to preserve their business interest without offering a thing of meaningful benefit on name, image, and likeness. And then on the legal front, it's important to look at how the NCAA characterized their interests in the Austin case, in their briefing. And when you go back and you look through how they framed the issues to the district court and then early in 2019 after the district court issued its ruling and that was in March of 2019 when the NCAA decided to appeal 10 days later they issued a a press release justifying the appeal and they appealed it wasn't the athletes who initiated this appeal but when they appealed they were laying the foundation for their iron throne argument and basically what they were saying is federal courts had no business interfering with the NCAA's business and that was the philosophical foundation for the arguments they pursued in Austin at the appellate level that they should be entitled to absolute complete ironclad antitrust immunity from any federal antitrust claims. And then in the Senate, they were ramping up their lobbying campaign behind closed doors through Brownstein Hyatt to make the same case in the Senate that they were making in federal courts with the addition of preemption and athletes can't be employees. So the starting point for all three of those threads that we're going to analyze was the NCAA sits on the iron throne of college sports regulation. It's above the law and it is answerable to no one. And if any rules or changes are going to occur, it's going to be by the NCAA sitting in the iron throne and only after they have been completely protected from any external regulatory threat. So the, the data points on the public relations side or the working group's work product and the data points on the litigation side are going to be the legal briefs that the NCAA filed. And then the oral argument in the Ninth Circuit is an important data point. And we're going to talk about that, too, because the Ninth Circuit had inquired about the impact of name, image, and likeness legislation on their thinking in the Austin case. And the NCAA and the athletes had to file briefs. And then that issue came up at oral argument. And the NCAA's attorney's responses in that brief and then also to those questions at oral argument were flatly inconsistent with the position the NCAA was taking publicly. And that got zero press coverage, but that's important. So that's the way I'm going to look at the legal side. It's in the official filings of the NCAA in their legal briefs. And then on this third thread of their campaign in the Senate, the data points are going to be really in two categories. One's going to be these bills, the Rubio bill, the NCAA bill, the Wicker bill, and the Moran bill. And then also the four hearings that were conducted in 2020. I'm also going to talk about the two that were conducted in 2021. But I want to focus on 2020 because the Republicans were in control of the Senate and it looked like they were having their way in the Senate. And those hearings, the way they were constructed, the witnesses that were on the witness list, and then the themes that were emphasized in all four of those hearings were NCAA all the way. 
And in my uh, last episode, maybe it was two episodes ago, as I was talking about this transition into the next phase of Senate hearings, which I think will happen, I don't know, September, October, around then. But I, I talked about the importance of having the advantage of setting the terms of the debate and the NCAA and the Power Five set the terms of the debate in all three of these arenas, in federal courts, then in the Senate, and then in the arena of public opinion through the working group. And that is a very important and potent advantage. And these Senate hearings are a perfect example of that. And the one that occurred on February 11th in 2020, the very first hearing where the NCAA came out with their campaign that we, we want to provide name, image, and likeness benefits for athletes, but we need help from Congress. We can't do this without uh, help from Congress. And that initial framing was so powerful because it created the illusion, both at the public relations level, but also at the legislative level, in their lobbying and their persuasion campaigns with individual senators and with the Senate Commerce Committee, which has first-line jurisdiction over sports issues, that this was all about about doing what was best for the athletes. This was all about doing the right thing and getting these athletes some name, image, and likeness compensation. <laughs> and that could only happen if Congress helped them. And the, the differences between that first hearing and then what came out in the working group's final report in April and then what the final hearing looked like in, in 2020 in September, and that was in the Health, Education, Labor, and Pensions Committee chaired by Republican Lamar Alexander. You had this transformation of the issues because in that first February hearing, the broad theme was we need Congress's help, but we want people to really know that the reason we need help is because we're doing the right thing by athletes. We're just on the trail of righteousness for athlete well-being. But Mark Emmert was questioned at that hearing about what these nil benefits were going to look like. What was the progress on voluntary name, image, and likeness rules making? And he refused to answer those questions. Because this was never about actual name, image, likeness uh, rules changes. This was about getting these federal protections and immunities. And because they were simply using this first hearing to set the template and get that advantage in framing the debate, they didn't use the word preemption. They didn't use the word antitrust immunity. And they didn't specifically talk about how they wanted to get a federal declaration that athletes couldn't be employees. They didn't want to talk about it on those terms because that wasn't the purpose of that first hearing. And that first hearing was a dog and pony show and it was dominated by NCAA friendly witnesses. And it's a, it was really an interesting witness selection technique for the NCAA. And sitting pretty at the front of the table were Mark Emmert and Bob Bowlesby. And with the benefit of hindsight now, we can see how self-serving and misleading and deflection-oriented their testimony was, but they weren't willing to talk honestly about what they were actually seeking from, from Congress. And when you look back, again, in hindsight, at what the final report actually looked like and then how these elements of the perfect storm played out just into what's happened in the last month, you can see how misleading the NCAA was because I don't think there's any question that on February 11th of 2020, Mark Emmert knew exactly what that working group's final report was going to look like. And it was going to say, we need preemption. 
We need absolute antitrust immunity, and we need a declaration from Congress that athletes can't be employees. But when asked to be more specific about what they were asking, Mark Emmert deflected on that point. And Bob Bowlesby was right there behind him. And so we're going to look at exactly what they said and, and the questions as posed and the answers that were provided. And again, uh, on the backside of that hearing, the response in the media was just, oh, NCAA is doing the right thing, but they just need a little help from Congress. They just need this little help from Congress. But there wasn't any critical analysis of how vague the NCAA had been and how evasive both Emmert and Bowlesby were on some very important questions. If you're going to ask for <laughs> congressional intervention to get the extraordinary protections and immunities, well, you need to bring your A game in. And they didn't have to do that because that wasn't the purpose of the hearing. The hearing was to allow them to set the template, to frame the argument, to set the terms of the debate. And once there was buy-in that federal intervention was appropriate, then they would start to put some flesh on the bones of what it is they really wanted. And again, from a public relations standpoint, it was a brilliant tactic. But more importantly, from a legislative strategy standpoint, it was important because it got them in the door. And in February, we're pre-COVID. The fact that that momentum carried through into COVID and got the attention of Congress through these additional hearings, when we were in the midst of one of the greatest health crises in the history of the country, just speaks to the power of these interests and the power of setting the dynamic because this became an emergency thing. Congress had to act. We need your help. We need it immediately because name, image, and likeness is this huge boogeyman that's floating in the background. And we have this California law and the sky is falling. So that you know, chicken little approach and time is of the essence that if we don't act now, it'll be the end of college sports as we know it. All those tactics the NCAA has employed really since the 1950s were on full display and, and they worked. And again, it was part of a multi-pronged, very sophisticated campaign. So heading into 2019, I just want to talk about what I think the NCAA's mindset was. And this goes to this disclosure in the April 2020 final report of the working group that the central threshold question wasn't how the NCAA was going to offer meaningful nil benefits, but whether they should be offered at all. And that is a more honest portrayal of where they sat in 2019. So coming in to early 2019, a couple of important things really influenced the NCAA's thinking. One is that they were just on the backside of the O'Bannon case. A lot of people think that O'Bannon ended in 2016 when the U.S. Supreme Court uh, declined to review the case. And that was true for the substantive litigation. But the attorney's fees litigation continued in O'Bannon into June of 2018. And in that attorney's fees litigation, the NCAA didn't back down an inch from its position that these athletes weren't entitled to a penny of name, image, and likeness compensation, and that in fact, after the Ninth Circuit's ruling, that they essentially won the lawsuit. And they were saying they didn't have to pay attorney's fees because one, they actually won the lawsuit, and two, oh, by the way, the, the only remedy the athletes got, which were these cost of attendance scholarships, the NCAA was going to approve anyway. 
So this remedy really was meaningless because they athletes were going to get this stuff. Anyway, the district court, the magistrate, and the Ninth Circuit ultimately weighed in on all those arguments and rejected them and nailed the NCAA with the plaintiff's attorney's fees, the athlete's attorney's fees, and that was upwards of $45 million. But the NCAA was unrepentant. The NCAA didn't budge an inch from the position it took in that lawsuit from the very beginning of 2009 that it was going to fight to the death before they paid these athletes a penny above their athletics scholarship. And that is how they litigated that case. They spent $100 million in a lawsuit that lasted seven years of substantive litigation to avoid paying a penny of name, image, and likeness compensation because O'Bannon was a name, image, and likeness case. And that was the attitude they carried through the attorney's fees litigation into the uh, middle of 2018. And that is the attitude they brought into 2019 when they uh, were thinking about how they were going to respond to this uh, California law that was coming into shape. And their initial response was up yours, up yours to the athletes, up yours to the state of California, up yours to the California Assembly, up yours to Gavin Newsom, the governor of California, and up yours to anybody who supported paying athletes a penny above their athletic scholarship. The NCAA was just as arrogant and defiant at the end of that lawsuit as they were at the beginning. And that carried over into 2019. So the NCAA didn't have a change of heart between June of 2018 and May of 2019. If you believe that, then God bless you. But the NCAA's lawyers and lobbyists and public relations people all based inside the Beltway in D.C., they, I think, sat down with the NCAA and said, look, you guys have a golden opportunity here. We can turn these lemons into lemonade. And on the back side of this, you can look like you were trying to do the right thing, look like the good guys, but we're going to get you protections and immunities that are going to allow you to do whatever the hell you want to do. And the other thing that's so important is in that regard and and, and looking at the options that the NCAA had to get what it wanted to uh, make itself bulletproof from any external regulatory threat. You had this Austin case that was winding through, and I've talked quite a bit about the legal issues in Austin. And my episodes leading up to the oral argument and then after that really talk about that in some detail. I think those are episodes uh, 7 to, I want to say, 16. And you can check all of that out. But you had this lawsuit that was being litigated within the limitations of O'Bannon. And O'Bannon, in some ways, was a win for the NCAA because they got a form of limited antitrust immunity for any payments to athletes that were unrelated to education. So the the O'Bannon court had this education, -education non-education-related benefit distinction. Education-related benefits were okay. Non-education-related benefits would be pay-for-play and not okay. And so that really adopted the NCAA's conceptualization of amateurism. So on the backside, O'Bannon wasn't a bad case for the NCAA. And Austin, which was originally the case that was going to bring amateurism to its knees, had to be modified to conform to those limitations in O'Bannon. So on the backside of of the O'Bannon decision, really what they were litigating in Austin was this modest category of education-related benefits. And you would have thought 
that the NCAA would have been eager to offer some additional education-related benefits. But no, they fought that case to the death, too. And they spent another, I don't know, $100 million uh, in legal fees. And then they settled part of the Austin suit for $200 million. So already at this point, coming into 2019, between the legal fees in O'Bannon and Austin, we're upwards of uh, half a billion dollars. <laughs> The NCAA spent that money to avoid paying a penny above the value of an athletic scholarship. So no, they weren't going to change their tune. But in December of 2018, you had the trial in Austin and the full-blown trial, and it was a bench trial. And then in March, a few months later, Judge Wilkin issues her decision. It was a 104-page decision in her findings of fact and conclusions of law. And she found that the NCAA was, again, subject to antitrust laws and antitrust scrutiny and to the full rule of reason analysis, and that their pro-competitive justification of amateurism to justify these compensation limits was legitimate enough to pass muster as a pro-competitive justification, but it didn't carry the day. And then she crafted this limited injunction that benched the NCAA on these limited category of education-related benefits and allowed the Power Five the discretion to offer them or not offer them. It was a very limited order, and the Supreme Court made, made clear in its ultimate decision in, in June. But nobody was asking why the NCAA was appealing, but that's an important step at the beginning of this perfect storm in how the NCAA was thinking about it. And so I want to read to you the statement that the NCAA released when it chose to appeal. And that opinion, Judge Wilkins opinion, came out on March 8th of 2019. And then it was about 10 days later that the NCAA announced that it was going to appeal. And they used their website, their propaganda media center website. And this was a statement from Donald Remy, who was the lead NCAA in-house lawyer or, and, and the point person for public relations purposes. So all these litigation-related announcements came through Remy, but he says, The NCAA's longstanding commitment, supported by its schools and conferences, is to provide student-athletes with the education benefits they need to succeed in school and beyond. While the district court upheld the distinction between full-time students who play college sports and professional athletes, it erred by giving itself authority to micromanage decisions about education-related support. We believe, and the Supreme Court has recognized, that the NCAA member schools and conferences are best positioned to strengthen and revise their rules to better support student-athletes, rather than forcing these issues into continuous litigation. The NCAA and conference defendants unanimously agree to appeal the district court's decision. So I want to talk a little bit about that statement. And if you weren't following the Austin case the way that I was following it, you wouldn't appreciate the hidden messages in, in this release. And they're important because they really are the framework, the template for what the NCAA is actually seeking in this litigation, even though they would outright deny that's what they were doing. They're seeking a way to get federal courts out of the regulatory field. 
And they don't believe that Judge Wilkin or any other federal judge has any business coming in and second-guessing what the NCAA does or telling it what to do. So it talks about their long-standing commitment supported by schools and conferences to provide student-athletes with the education benefits they need to succeed in school and beyond. Right, so here you have an education nonprofit appealing a court order requiring them to provide education benefits. And they're modest education benefits. Okay, so they throw in this. While the district court upheld the distinction between full-time students who play college sports and professional athletes, it erred by giving itself authority to micromanage decisions about education-related support. So in that first clause, it wants to acknowledge that the court gave some credence to the pro-competitive justification of amateurism. But this second clause is so important. It erred by giving itself authority to micromanage decisions about education-related support. Basically, that is saying out loud what they implied in that first sentence, and that is, butt out, federal courts. You have no business being here. And the, uh, the next sentence is really important uh, because it talks about the Supreme Court's recognized that the NCAA member schools and conferences are best positioned to strengthen and revise their rules to better support student-athletes rather than forcing these issues into continuous litigation. That sentence is important because basically that is a reference to Board of Regents and this language that when it comes to regulations that go to amateurism-based rules, that the NCAA should be in the Iron Throne. And that was dicta. It wasn't that language wasn't necessary to the court's decision in Board of Regents, and the U.S. Supreme Court in Austin in, in June recognized that. But in the way that the NCAA was thinking about this issue in early 2019, and, and for the purposes of appealing Austin, they want to press the Iron Throne argument. They're saying here that the NCAA and only the NCAA is in a position to regulate in college sports, period. And then this clause, rather than forcing these issues into continuous litigation, that is as close as they're going to come to saying that they want outright antitrust immunity because the only way to prevent these issues from being forced into continuous litigation is to grant the NCAA antitrust immunity. And there's no other way they can get it. So they talk around it, but it's clear to me and was clear to me when I first read this that the NCAA was going antitrust immunity and Iron Throne all the way. And I wrote about that back in 2019. And I had people telling me I was off base and the NCAA really wasn't pursuing antitrust immunity. And the NCAA was outright denying that they were doing that. But they were. And I believe this press release is really the the opening salvo in that campaign. And then the last sentence here, this is really important too. Because remember, under this order that Judge Wilkin crafted in Austin, the big-time conferences, the Power Five conferences, were going to have the authority over these education-related benefits. So wouldn't you think that they would be happy about that? That they would be excited that they have the freedom to offer some more uh, benefits for athletes and they go to the heart of the educational purpose of, of the way they define college sports? Wouldn't you think they'd be happy? No. So here, here he says, the NCAA and conference defendants unanimously agree to appeal the district court's decision. Unanimously agree. That's important. The NCAA wants the public to know, and this is a public statement, they want the public to know that all of the conference defendants agree 
that the NCAA and only the NCAA should be in charge of making these decisions and that this federal judge is out of bounds and that the status quo is really what we need here because that's what's best for college sports. And everyone agrees. <laughs> Back to this consensus uh, argument that I have identified time and time again as one of the tactics, the propaganda tactics that the NCAA uses so often. And that is everybody agrees. Nobody disagrees. No reasonable person could see this in a way different from the way that we see it. And on and on. But that was an important press release and that, again, got very little attention. And it was about as close as the NCAA was going to come to admitting publicly that their true intent in pushing Austin through the appellate process was to get the, the case to the U.S. Supreme Court. I, I think after O'Bannon, they didn't think that the Ninth Circuit was going to offer them absolute antitrust immunity. It, it couldn't, really. So they had their eyes on the Supreme Court here because both in O'Bannon and Austin, the same district court judge found that the NCAA was subject to antitrust scrutiny, that they weren't immune from antitrust laws altogether. And the Ninth Circuit affirmed that in O'Bannon and the Ninth Circuit wasn't gonna back away from that. They couldn't really under principles of precedent. So the NCAA in this statement, they have their eyes on the United States Supreme Court because that's the only place they're gonna get antitrust immunity that has any value and any lasting power. That's what this was all about. And the NCAA and the NCAA Board of Governors shamelessly scream and moan and whine and complain about frivolous and besieging litigation. But in this case, through this press release, through their appeal to the Ninth Circuit with a view towards getting it to the United States Supreme Court, there is no question that the NCAA is using this very frivolous litigation <laughs> to press its campaign for the iron throne of college sports regulation. And I believe that they thought that they had a real good chance of winning in the United States Supreme Court. And that that chance only increased when we switched out Barrett, Amy Coney Barrett, for Ruth Bader Ginsburg after Justice Ginsburg passed away in September. So this is the blueprint. And nobody saw it that way. And I think that had the media been a little more attentive to what was really going on here and what the NCAA was really trying to do, and they connected the dots from this open hostility to name, image, and likeness to this disingenuous change of direction in the beginning of 2019, there may have been a, a little more of a skeptical view of what was happening here. And again, the NCAA and Power Five came oh so close to pulling this off. So I think that's a pretty good lead in to an event by event, work product by work product, brief by brief, hearing by hearing, uh, legislative proposal by legislative proposal analysis of the last two years. So with that, I'm just going to go ahead and, and close this thing out because I think we have gotten to a place where we can just go and follow these three tracks, the legislative track in the Senate, the litigation track, and then the public relations, voluntary rules making track within the NCAA, and really start to bring these elements together to show how things played out in 2019, and then into this crucial year of 2020, and then into 2021. So thank you so much for joining. It's always an honor and a privilege to have you. And I hope to have you back for the next episode of the Big Amateurism Monologues. Take care.